Welcome to Brainstorm, Decoding Depression, where we will dig into discussions about mood disorders. We're here to change the way we think and talk about depression in an accessible, approachable way with a leading expert in the field. No topic is off limits. Coming to you from Dallas, Texas, this is Brainstorm. The opinions expressed are our own and do not reflect those of UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT system, or the state. Hello to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Brainstorm, Decoding Depression. My name is Katherine Forbes, and I'm here with Dr. Madhukar Trivedi, the founding director of the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. Today, we're diving into a conversation about the state of youth in Dallas, Texas, we're happy to have a return appearance from Dr. Early Dennison, a pediatrician at Pediatrics Associates of Dallas with a strong interest in youth mental health. He joined us for episode one of our second season of Brainstorm, where we discussed adolescent risk and protective factors with his partners from the Parenting for the Present Foundation. Welcome back, Dr. Dennison. Thank you for having me back. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I love uh, talking about mental health, excited about what you guys are doing on the proactive side and um, just really thrilled to be here. So thanks for having me back. We are also thrilled to have Dr. Tracy Brown here with us to share her perspective as the Executive Director of Mental Health Services in Dallas Independent School District. Having obtained a master's in counseling and a PhD in psychology, Dr. Brown has served in the field of counseling, education, and mental health for more than 28 years. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, glad to be here. I'd like to start this discussion with a question for each of you to answer. Based off of each of your personal and professional experiences, how do you think the youth in Dallas are doing these days? So I think both are important issues to think about. One is good news. I think that it is now becoming very clear that this is common, mental illnesses or mental issues for kids, and therefore people are more aware. They are at least willing to have a conversation. The troubling thing is that we still remain quite delayed in when attention is provided, routine assessment, routine screening, routine measurements, and making sure that we don't wait too long still remains a challenge. So we have our work cut out for it, but I think the environment is changing quite dram dramatically. I would echo what Dr. Trevetti is saying. When I get parents and uh, kids coming into the office, it's not uh, a stigma anymore to talk about mental health and so I find that encouraging clearly we all know that there is a lot of depression and anxiety out there with our youth uh, multifactorial which I know we'll get into but I'm excited that uh, to to that point that it, we're talking about it we're being proactive and um, so I think there's some encouraging things clearly we've got a long ways to go but I would echo that what do you think Dr. Brown? I agree totally, uh, Dr. Dennison. Um, I think it's relative. Uh, you know, as we see our youth in our schools, um, they come every day, and we are really trying to get a handle on what they are um, struggling with. I think it's really good that our leaders in our district are have a pulse on that and really able to. Uh, support that and really able to help us to identify what, what's happening with our youth. 
I'm really excited, uh, as Dr. Dennison and Dr. Trevetti have indicated, that we're able to talk about it and help our students feel comfortable with saying, I need help. So I'm really excited about uh, the opportunity to continue to have conversations about our youth mental health and be able to, to address those issues with our kids. So it sounds like each of you have some similar thoughts on the youth in Dallas. Before we dive in deeper, Dr. Trevetti, can you fill us in on some of the statistics about youth depression and youth suicide? So one of the things I'd like to say is it is common, and therefore we should be vigilant and be aware that, there, that this can affect any of the teens and young people, young adults, uh, and especially because we know that there are two major peaks. One is immediately upon puberty, there's a rise in rates of depression and anxiety, and the other is as they go to college. So we should be aware of this, and uh, rates of depression and suicide are getting higher slightly because we are now becoming more vigilant. That's one thing. And yet we need to remember that the pandemic has a big effect, so therefore there is a little bit of increase because of that. And so we should be aware that this is there, but it should not frighten us. I think one of the things people forget is we have very good ways of assessing this. We have very good treatments available. They don't actually need to be medications alone. There are many other treatments, and in fact, in teenagers, for example, especially, medications may not and should not be the first line of treatment. Dr. Brown, how does this perspective relate to your experiences in DISD, or the Dallas Independent School District? Oh, absolutely. Um, every concern our students have, um, every outcry of uh, self-harm or suicidality is taken extremely seriously. Um, and so we train our clinicians and our counselors on the campus to be able to respond to students that make an outcry. And um, that training takes us a long way. I mean, we're able to get in front of a lot of um, uh, what, what would be suicide attempts. We can get in front of that because we've trained our staff, um, not just our licensed staff, but even our teachers get trained at the beginning of the year to be able to identify signs and symptoms of suicide and um, they also become our eyes and ears on the campus to help us plug into what students are going through and making sure that we're addressing uh, that for our students. So, absolutely. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that y'all are doing all of that work for all of your staff and your students. How has the pandemic affected these efforts? Uh, oh boy. Um, That's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in our district, uh, you know, depression and anxiety have uh, always been kind of at the top of our list of main concerns uh, that we address. Uh, but what we're also seeing uh, in addition to that is uh, grief uh, and uh, a lot of physical aggression uh, that's associated with that. So um, it's, it's brought about the conversation as to what are we doing in the classroom? What's happening with our teachers? Are they equipped with the knowledge and skills to know you know, what the concerns are, what does depression look like? Uh, instead of seeing a kid with his head on the desk and he just doesn't want to participate, we're asking teachers to just take that next uh, level of thought to say, what's happening? You know, instead of, you know, just he's not doing his work, what's happening in your life? Mm -hmm. And just opening up that conversation with students is really important. So we train our, our teachers and our staff to be able to have those conversations. They're not licensed professionals and we understand that, but we give them enough 
uh, enough to skills and tools to go with to know how to connect our students to uh, a licensed clinician that can take our students to the next level. And Dr. Trevetti, I know you had an example of how illnesses like the flu can sometimes cause depression. Can you elaborate a little more about that? So we, we have to think about depression. A lot of people wonder what is the cause. And like with many medical illnesses, there are many factors. One of them is early life tra trauma, early life stresses, hormonal changes, because as you, we know, girls and boys and girls have similar rates of depression before puberty. And then as soon as puberty hits, women, girls and women have double the rate of depression. So hormonal changes, other life experiences all have a, an effect on, the, on causing depression. But we are actually also finding out there are real biological reasons. An example is there is about 20 to 30% of people with depression may have something called inflammatory kind of depression where inflammation may be affected. So we did a study some years back where we looked at people uh, no employees at UT Southwestern who got uh, flu vaccine. And immediately after flu vaccine, about 20%, 25% of people will have some changes, some sim symptoms for 24 to 48 hours. What we found was that that was actually seen only in those people who had history of depression, clearly suggesting that inflammation, which is what the flu vaccine causes, can be associated with higher rates of depression. So there are many different subgroups. You can see some people have depression associated with weight gain and metabolic changes. Some have changes related to inflammation. And so we are actually at UT Southwestern doing a lot of research trying to identify these causes. And could you speak to the primary causes of depression that we know of? So there is some degree of predisposition, which is a very small amount. And so I, one thing when people start talking about causes, I want to rem, reminds me of a, a, a real example where two mothers taking their 16-year-olds to their pediatrician. And the pediatrician tells one 16-year-old's mother that she has asthma. The mother says, what can I do? The other 16-year-old, the pediatrician, says she has depression, and the mother says, where did I go wrong? It is, that is the kind of thing that we have to remove that myth. So the predisposition is there, but it's very small. I think it's the early life experiences, it's hormonal effects, it's experiences with social connections across their growing up period, all of that leads to changes in brain circuits. And so this is really becoming very clear that once somebody has depression, circuits in the brain are not functioning normally. And we need to actually be treating that either through therapy, through medication, sometimes may need other treatments. And Dr. Brown had just mentioned educating teachers to look out for symptoms for students. Dr. Dennison, what about other things that parents, doctors, and other community members could look out for to see if a child is struggling? So I think that can vary based on the age. For younger kids, we get a lot of kids coming in complaining of physical symptoms like the tummy aches and the headaches. I also get uh, the, the complaint of more tantrums. And then if, if you see a child talking more about their uh, fears and, and communicating things along those lines, I think that could be a sign that something else is going on. The older kids, 
you tend to get more of the lack of interest in things that they were previously um, passionate about. Maybe they're sleeping too much, a change in uh, their diet or exercise, more time alone. Clearly, if you saw self-harm uh, tendencies, that would be a red flag. And then I think also we I would be remiss not to mention either new drug and alcohol use or um, clearly a, a, a problematic behavior there. So I think drugs and alcohol pl is, would be a, a flag there. Dr. Trey and Dr. Brown, would y'all comment on anything that you see, would think about with symptoms? And I think you covered it. One of the things to remember, and you raised it already, and that is there is this underlying myth also that if you ask them, that will put the thoughts of depression or suicide in their heads. And what we find is the opposite. In fact, these teenagers, when you ask them, they feel relieved that somebody is really paying attention and can then seek help. So, uh, but otherwise, you covered all of it. Any change in, in their behavior, either when they were very friendly, they are now not doing that, or they were much more introverted. Now they suddenly have too many friends. You should be actually trying to find out what's going on. <laughs> And keeping conversation open and modeling your behavior is, I hear a lot of parents complain about their children's social media use. While they are themselves using social media at the dinner table, so some of it is also modeling. I, I wanna um, also uh, piggyback on what uh, Dr. Jennison indicated in terms of drug and alcohol um, use and how it impacts uh, student behavior and cognition. Um, and that's something we're looking at in Dallas ISD. We have a an, uh, drug and alcohol um, coordinator who provides education related to the effect that it has on student learning and behavior. And uh, that's something that we're seeing. And we wanna make sure that, again, our, our campus staff understands the impact that drugs and alcohol have on behavior and learning. Um, and then the education piece, I attended a, a session about a, month and, about a month and a half or so ago and had some amazing education on drugs and alcohol and just trends and what's going on in that world. And if you don't know what that is, then you won't understand when students come to the classroom and they're exhibiting certain types of behavior and you're thinking, oh, well, they just didn't get sleep last night. Um, I mean, and as you spoke to Dr. Dennison in terms of, you know, changes in behavior or eating patterns or friends, as you spoke to Dr. Trevetti, um, all of those things play a factor. So if we have our hands on it and we're aware of it, then we can start to ask those uh, critical questions. Um, but I think drugs and alcohol is certainly something that factors into um, you know, students experiencing depression, and we need to look at that and see how we can mitigate that. Definitely. Yeah. That's a really important point to touch on. Dr. Trevetti, tell us about some research that the CDRC has been doing in working with pediatricians and also in schools. So with medical systems, pediatricians, primary care, et cetera, what we've done is created basically a measurement tool called Vital Sign 6. It is actually a measurement tool so that you can measure all these symptoms that Dr. Dennison mentioned and how they're changing over time. And it also inherently provides decision to support to the pediatricians and family practice physicians. I think Don, Dr. Dennison will tell us his practices at the forefront where they're using measurements on a routine basis doesn't happen in routine care in most places. 
So this software allows the pediatrician to have almost an assistance at their elbow so that they can elevate their care because most people, especially young people with depression, anxiety, don't go see a mental health specialist. They are in pediatric practice and family practice, so we have to go there to change the practice, like we did with asthma, like we did with diabetes, like we did with other medical illnesses over the last 30 years. It's time for us to start doing that for depression, anxiety. So that's one thing we're doing with medical practices, especially pediatricians and family practice. If we're currently using the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, how does the Vital Sign 6 differ in terms of its ease of use? One of the things I see is, so we, we try to do that, we don't try it. We do that on every kid 12 and above at their checkups, the mental health screen. But then you get varying degrees of parent involvement or you know not wanting to share and, and privacy concerns. How does the uh, Vital Sign 6 work? Oh, real quick, could you tell us what the PHQ-9 and the, the GAD-7 are? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the PHQ-9 is screening for depression and the GAD-7 is screening for anxiety. And there are, how, how would you all describe it? Uh, s certain scores uh, tell you what, I think we go into mild, moderate, mild, severe. Mild, moderate. So severe, it right. measures the nine domains of symptoms of depression, and you are, can, based on the scores with significant accuracy, say whether somebody is mild, moderate, no depression, et cetera. And uh, I think that first, congratulations for using it. it. A lot of your peers are not routinely using it. The second part is when you use red the rating instruments, like you're saying, parents and and, and the teenager or young adult uh, really go get back and forth. Instead, the software actually provides a laptop to the to the teenager, for example. They do it in their privacy of their own thoughts and finish it so that by the time you go to the exam room, that is already done. So that is the one benefit is it's a true reflection of what they are experiencing. And the second part is as soon as that is done, because the software has an uh, artificial intelligence built into the background, it actually tracks from the beginning how they are doing and the treatments they receive by, from you and provides decision support to the pediatrician. So that at that point, you, you know, there are people like you who do this routinely and probably don't need so much of the decision support because you're already doing it. But in a lot of practices, that's not done. So this software actually is almost like having uh, an automated driver who takes care of so that we get the right decisions. And we're actually piloting that in our district as well. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, tell us about that. We, we are, um, we're working with a company to um, have that tool um, um, on, a, on a laptop computer so that when families or parents come into our clinics, they're able to, you know, we're able to administer the PHQ-9 and um, at that time, at the point of care, mm -hmm. uh, be able to have that information so that we can make critical decisions uh, as relates to treatment. <coughs> so we're piloting it in our district <laughs> and uh, really excited about it. I think it's gonna be a game changer and really excited about um, our board of trustees that have given us the opportunity and the funds and resources to be able to do that. In our, in and that is exactly that that software that you're describing. I'm aware of what that is, and it does the measurements. But then the decision support as to what do you do about the results is what Vital Science 6, the software, actually provides. 
and it provides a graphic display both for the patient and for all your patients about it. It also sends reminders. The software also sends out these measurements to the patients the night before so that they can fill it out before they even come. So it has been now in several systems, like health systems in Lubbock is using it in all their clinics. And it's now fully integrated with an electronic health record called Cerner. So I, gradually what we are trying to do exactly <clears throat> what you're saying, Dr. Brown, measurements are important. But then one of the other problems used to happen with blood glucose and hemoglobin A1C in the past, and now measurements is eno not enough. It's a necessary step, but then you have to make the decisions, and that's what this is supposed to help with. That sounds fantastic. We, we need to have a conversation offline about how to get that to all pediatricians. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And what else is being done in schools? It sounds like there's a lot of things on the proactive end in the pediatrician's office. Um, tell us more about the screening tools and about youth aware of mental health. So screening tools, as uh, Dr. Brown mentioned, I think they're doing, again, you are at the forefront, as you know. Not many school districts have the luxury of being able to do it. In terms of YAM, it's actually moving the needle ahead of actually having the symptoms. And so what we are doing is it's a mental health literacy, resilience building, prevention program for the entire classroom. One of the major problems we've run into is we wait for somebody's illnesses identified. And often that means months and maybe often years have passed between when they start having experience problems and they're identified. YAM is designed to be much earlier and come to the full classroom, so you're not labeling somebody with mental illness. And then they get this five-session interactive program, which actually is based on experience, so they are not actually getting didactics. They're not getting lectured to, but they participate in this work, at the end of which they understand what depression is, what anxiety is, what mental illness is, what substance use problems are. They also learn how to seek help, how to help somebody with a problem, and we now have reached about 20,000 students in the North Texas area in the last several years. And the state actually leadership and legislature is getting interested, so they have agreed, given us the pilot funds to be able to go through or across all 12 major medical centers in the state. And we are implementing this across the state now. And Dr. Brown, I know that you specialize in resiliency training as a counselor. What role does resilience play in your work? Yeah, I think just um, helping, all of our licensed clinicians are specialized in multiple areas, but there's one that we, we make sure that um, we're helping our students to understand how to reach into their internal toolkits and access the strengths and access um, the, the inner uh, tools that they have to be able to overcome challenges. And so it's really important that um, students understand that yes they have a service provider there to help but we also draw their attention to what they have within their own scope to be able to work with to overcome uh, some of the challenges uh, they experience both behavior challenges uh, mental health challenges uh, family challenges whatever they are um, we want students to understand that there is a path forward and there's someone to help you find uh, the internal structures to be able to overcome those things this is very exciting because I think that people forget in our field about the fact that you can actually build resilience. You can actually 
bring that out to support your condition and people have we focus too much on our deficits on our in our patients but not talked about the strengths that they bring to the they have both and i think what you're talking about with the resilience building is to trying to actually augment and bring out the strengths they have and a lot of this is about stigma also because we talk about it as if this is the first time in medicine we have done this. We do this in diabetes all the time. People learn how to modulate their eating behavior. They learn how to have a routine. That's resilience building for diabetes and similarly for depression, anxiety. And so I'm glad you're doing that in the school districts. I think this YAM program is also designed to help teenagers learn how to bring out their strengths, help themselves and help their friends. Um, we're uh, currently working on a campaign that's kind of based on the Sandy Hook, um, Sandy Hook initiative. Uh, it's called See Something, Say Something. And one of the things we're doing is encouraging all students to learn how to, um, you know, one of, well, a part of the campaign is start with hello. And so it's just helping students to understand you can build a sense of confidence. You can build a sense of uh you know, just feeling good about yourself by giving you the skills and the tools you need to be able to connect with your peers, connect with your teachers and so forth. So we're really excited about that. That's coming first of February and really excited about being able to teach students how to, um, you know, how to how to connect with their environment. And, and that's really important for us. Um, Dr. Dennison, actually, all three of you are parents as well as professionals. What lessons do each of you take from what you've learned working with youth? Where to begin? <laughs> Somewhere. That's right. a loaded question. Right. Well, I was thinking in, in terms of the resiliency thing. Is there, I don't know how many of the listeners are familiar with um, the space program or space treatment at Yale. It's a guy named Ellie Leibowitz. Stands for Supported Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. And so I was going to ask you all, too, in, in your work, how much of the are, are we also talking to parents because the whole idea of, of the space program is one for cognitive behavioral therapy to work and some of this training you need to have a motivated participant and sometimes shall we say that preteens and teens are not very excited about being in therapy um, so if they're not dialed in maybe they're not getting as as much as they could so the idea is working with parents and I think there's this idea of bulldozer parenting. Have y'all heard this term? It's different than helicopter parenting mm -hmm. where you're rescuing the kids. Bulldozer is I'm going to like smooth everything in front of you. I don't want you to struggle. I'm going to get all the obstacles out of your way. And then the kid doesn't have to suffer, right? And, th and then there's this idea of, well, how do you learn to be with your emotions? And how do you learn to be uncomfortable and struggle with uh, challenges in life and, and be resilient? So... All that to say, uh, I, want, I wanted to ask if that's going on, but for, in my personal life, trying to um, be aware of, we have these well-intentioned, um, we mean well as parents when we, tr but we end up sometimes accommodating or perpetuating behavior because, oh, it's just easier for me to do it, or you know what, uh, I'll just kind of smooth the path in front of you, and then you're giving the kid the message that, hey, you're not strong enough to do this yourself, or you can't handle this, so I'm going to rescue you or do this for you. So as a parent, to answer your question, uh, I've tried to be aware of when I'm uh, doing that behavior and uh, hold myself a little more accountable and, uh, and tell my kids, you know what, you, you got this, you can do this, I'm here for you, but I'm, 
I'm going to support you, but you can do this. Did and and I think that would, you you raise that important point, and that is, I think as parents, we have to be giving them full permission to be able to actually convey what they're feeling. And often that the you describe bulldozer parents, but there are many different models where that invitation is not easy for the child to see, and therefore the child doesn't then convey that. And so that is what you're saying is be available for that. Uh, one thing that you raise that I, we've been, we and on our podcast also and otherwise also talk a lot about our successes, and I have to confess on a, on a challenge that we run into, which is what you raise, and that is how do we get parents to be engaged with this discipline of trying to teach them resilience and all. Until the child has a serious issue, parents are not engaged. And so that is the, that is a challenge we've run into, Dr. Dennison, and, and I don't necessarily have a perfect answer of how to get these parents engaged with this process to help the teenager also to bring out their strengths. And so that is something we are actively working on. Yeah, I think... Um Personally, <laughs> as we're talking, I'm, I'm going to have to research that bulldozer thing. <laughs> but it's kind of I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> I'm going to ignore But I think fear is a big um, proponent of parenting behavior, <laughs> if you will. And I know for me, it's that fear of failure on both my side and my son's side. And so just reassuring myself as a parent that everything's going to be okay like and that my son really does have some of the skills that I taught him a long time ago they may not be exhibiting at that moment but you don't I think as a parent you don't realize that kids really do learn over time and given the opportunity to you know take that fall every now and then and and it's okay for that to happen. It's okay to not be okay sometimes. <laughs> you know, everything doesn't have to be uh, perfect. But I think just being okay with saying, I don't know, and then sometimes just letting the kids in on your own, you know, own experiences, your own fears and, 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 and failures uh, actually helps them. It takes some of the pressure, pressure off of them to feel like they have to follow in your footsteps if there's some level of success that they feel like they can't reach. So I think for me personally, just overcoming that, that fear of, oh my gosh, I didn't do what I was supposed to do or I didn't do that quite right, you know. I think the effort, I think parents just, them being assured that just the effort to be there and be present with your child is oftentimes enough and allowing them to build that toolbox that you were mentioning. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us for this talk about youth mental health um, and what we're seeing with youth in the Dallas area. Could you let our listeners know if each of you have a platform where they can reach out or read up on more of the work that you're doing? Well, in Dallas ISD, um, you can reach us at dallasisd.org slash mental health. Um, there you can, you know, see all of the aspects of our program. We have uh, school clinicians, we have 12 youth and family clinics, um, and we have our drug and alcohol program. So any information you need to know about that is at our website, dallasisd.org slash mental health. So uh, as I mentioned, I'm at Pediatric Associates of Dallas, but um, I also had the pleasure recently of starting a nonprofit called the Parenting for the Present Foundation. and. 
uh, we're trying to be proactive in addressing the mental health crisis. So that's why I love what you're talking about on this podcast is right up our alley. I do it with a psychologist and a minister. And so we talk about nurturing the mind, body, and spirit. So it's called uh, Parenting for the Present and uh, the website's parentingforthepresent.com. And you can find it on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all, all the, the good normal uh, social media feeds. No, thank you both, because I think that, again, it, it, your pediatric practice is a good model and, and a great model for people who are really thinking about how best to incorporate mental health in pediatric practice. I think that is that is beginning to take off, and hopefully we'll have, uh, like we do with other medical conditions, we'll have a similar kind of care in in non-mental health settings that we get in mental health settings. We don't expect, for example, if you have uh, arthritis, to go to a medical clinician uh, to have different outcomes than if you went to a rheumatologist. And same thing for mental health. We have to start democratizing this. So thank you for leading the way. And, and the Dallas ISD, you didn't give us the full scope, but does take care of mental health needs for kids I want to say more number of kids and more number of sessions for kids in this area than any other single institution, I think, based on the number of people you are serving. Absolutely. I want to give a shout out to our board of trustees who have really invested in our program. Uh, we have uh, upwards of 162 licensed clinicians on staff. Wow. Um, available at our, at our uh, campuses. We have 12 youth and family clinics, as I indicated earlier, about to embark on the 13th. So access to care, access to mental health resources is top priority for us and really excited about what we're able to, able to do for our families in Dallas ISD. Is there anything else that we didn't discuss that y'all wanna? Yeah, the only thing I was gonna add, kind of uh, building on what you were saying, I think you were, you were being honest and beating yourself up as a parent. And <clears throat> one of the things I think about and, and the message to the parents on this podcast is, you know, one, Dr. Trevetti mentioned trying to model what we'd like our kids to do. So, you know how much our children like us lecturing to them and how much we loved our parents lecturing to us. So maybe, maybe trying to model the behavior, to your point, the social media, getting enough sleep, uh, exercise and eating well. But also, to your point, when we make a mistake, I, I always think about this, you know, try to pause before you react, and then the calm parent equals calm kid. But when we lose our stuff, which we're going to do because we're human, uh, owning it and modeling that behavior too, because I think that our kids don't see people owning their mistakes enough, and so I think that's really important to say, you know what, I didn't handle that, and I'm going to try and do better next time. Mm -hmm. That's it for this episode of Brainstorm Decoding Depression with your hosts from the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. Be sure to follow us on social media at UTSW underscore CDRC so you don't miss our episode announcements. If you have suggestions for topics or questions you'd like answered, you can email us at decodingdepressionpodcast at utsouthwestern.edu. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.